Swindle by Gordon Corman. You have been chosen for your special skills to do something that urgently needs to be done. To learn more, come to the ballroom at 3.30. Don't miss this. It will be worth your while. Two weeks earlier. Sneaking out at night. Helpful hints. One, when lying to your parents, maintain eye contact. Two, make sure you ask permission to attend the correct fake sleepover. Boys, Stan Winter's place. Girls, Karen Lobodzik's. Three, meet at the old Rockford house at 8.30 p.m. Friday. You can't miss it. There's a crane with a giant wrecking ball parked in front. Four, enter through missing planks in boarded-up window. First floor, east side. Five, bring your sleeping bag. Remember, the old Rockford house is a condemned building that will be demolished tomorrow morning. There will be no beds, no running water, no furniture, no lights, no TV. When a plan came from Griffin Bing, even the tiniest detail had to be perfect. He agonized over every fine point and possibility, all except one. What if nobody showed up? We probably shouldn't have put in the part about no TV, Griffin's friend Ben Slovak said gumly. Griffin and Ben sat cross-legged on their sleeping bags in what had once been an elegant living room. They were surrounded by shredded drapery, remnants of ancient furnishing, and mounds of dust. All around them, the cavernous old house creaked and groaned with hollow, eerie noises. Outside, a thunderstorm raged. Griffin trained the beam of his flashlight on his wristwatch. 10.34 p.m. I can't believe it, he seized. How could we get nobody? 28 people said they were coming. Maybe they're just late, Ben offered lamely. Nine o'clock is late. 10.30 is a no-show. Don't they have any self-respect? This is like saying it's totally fine for the adults in this town to walk all over us. Ben would have dearly loved to be no-show number 29. Only loyalty to his best friend had brought him here tonight. Come on, Griffin, he reasoned. What difference does it make if two people or 200 people spend the last night in a condemned building? How does that show the adults that we're standing up for our rights? They're never even going to know about it. We'll know, Griffin said stoutly, sticking out his jaw. Sometimes you have to prove to yourself that you're more than just a slab of meat under the shrink wrap in your grocer's freezer. Why do you think I came up with a fake sleepover idea? I wanted to make sure everybody had an excuse to be here. That was the whole point behind the plan. The plan. Ben groaned inwardly. It was the best thing about Griffin, and also the worst. Griffin Bing was the man with the plan. Maybe the other kids wanted to come, but they were scared, Ben suggested. Of what? Griffin challenged. Dust? The rain? A whole night with no TV? This house is supposed to be haunted, Ben insisted. You know the rumors. What rumors? Griffin scoffed. How do you think it got abandoned in the first place? 
old man Rockford was in jail for cutting up his wife with a chainsaw. That's what Darren said. When's the last time Darren said anything that's been worth the air it took to blow it out of his big fat head, Griffin exploded. He also says he's distantly related to the Roxfords, with no proof whatsoever. Besides, they didn't even have chainsaws back in old man Rockford's time. They had railroads, though, Ben noted. According to Marcus, the real murder weapon was a railway spike pounded into her skull. Griffin wasn't buying it. He's just pulling your chain. You know how he loves messing with people. But Pitch doesn't. And you know what she heard? The house is haunted by the spirit of a dog that the old man brought home from Europe after World War I. Or maybe it wasn't a dog. Griffin rolled his eyes. Then what was it? A Komodo dragon? Ben shrugged. Nobody knows. But just a few days after it got to town, pets started disappearing. At first, it was just little kittens and puppies. But pretty soon, full-grown St. Bernards were vanishing into thin air. And there were bones buried all around the house. Only Rockford wasn't feeding his dog any bones. A flash of lightning cast strange, angular shadows through the boarded-up windows. Ben paused to let his story seek in. The townspeople took the law into their own hands. They put rat poison inside a big stake and left it on the doorstep. It never occurred to them that if an evil spirit could live inside a dog, it could live inside something else, too, like a house. He peered around at the shadowed walls, as if expecting to see something supernatural and hideous coming through. Oh, come on, Griffin refused to be shaken. There's no such thing as a haunted house. Well, Marcus heard the same story, Ben said with a sniff. No, he didn't, Griffin reminded him. He heard the one about the railway spike. He heard both, and so did Savannah. Only in her version, it wasn't a dog. It was a baby. Why would the townspeople poison a baby? They didn't. It got carried off by a chicken hawk. But the baby's ghost put a curse on the house to take back all the years it never got to live. There was a school teacher, the first non-Rockford ever to live there. No one saw her again after the day she moved in. Or maybe they did. People talked about an old, old woman peering out an attic window. But here's the thing. That school teacher was only 23. A gust of wind blew through the eaves, and an unearthly moaning sound echoed around them. Ben's head retreated turtle-like into his collar, and even Griffin paled a little. No offense, Ben, but shut up. You're starting to creep me out. Griffin panned the crumbling walls with his flashlight. It's almost eleven. Nobody's coming. Gutless wonders. It's the railway spike, said Ben nervously. That's got to be a splitting headache, literally. Griffin spread out his bedroll and lay back, standing his flashlight on its base like a miniature floor lamp. Let's try to get some sleep. The sooner the sun rises, the sooner we can get out of this rat trap. Maybe we can leave now, Ben suggested hopefully. Since nobody else came, they'll never know that we weren't here all night. Griffin was horrified. You mean back down? These two words were not in his vocabulary. 
I don't want my ears sucked away by some baby's ghost. There's no such thing, Griffin exclaimed. Who says you have to believe in ghosts to be afraid of them? Ben challenged. All right, fine. I'll sleep. He rolled over onto his side, pulling his knees to his chest. But if I wake up 85 years old, you owe me 20 bucks. Deal. They lay there in silence for what seemed like a long time, listening to the machine-gun rhythm of rain on the ancient slate roof. Griffin stared up at a gaping hole in the ceiling that had once held a chandelier. I hope you know how much I appreciate this. You're the only kid who had the guts to see it through. His friend said nothing, so Griffin went on. I mean it, man. The others, they talk a good game, but where are they? Darren dared half the sixth grade to come. He even made fun of us, said we'd wimp out. But who's the real wimp, huh, Ben? Ben's reply was slow, steady breathing. Almost like snoring? Ben? Griffin sat up and peered at his friend. Ben was curled into a ball on his bedroll, fast asleep. Griffin let out a low whistle of admiration. Creepy house, creepy night, and Ben was relaxed enough to doze off. He came off as a big chicken sometimes, but when he really counted, he was too cool for school. It was harder for Griffin to settle down. Not because he was scared, not at all. Griffin stayed up because he was mulling over the reason he and Ben were camping out with dust bunnies and a century of supernatural speculation. He was thinking about his last plan. Page 10, Chapter 2 As soon as the town had announced the meeting to decide what would be done with the Rockford land, Griffin had spoken those five fateful words. Let's work out a plan. Proposal for Development of Rockford Site Griffin Bing, Head Designer 1. The, this plan, approved by the kids of Cedarville, shows how the land of the old Rockford house can be turned into a skate and roller park, laid out according to diagram A below, scale 1 inch equals 12 feet. With the help of Ben, a few classmates, and Mr. Martinez, their teacher, Griffin put together a formal presentation to make to the town's council. But on the big night, the committee had refused even to hear their proposal. They had already decided on their own project, a Cedarville Museum. It still rankled Griffin. Not losing, sure, that had been disappointing. But to be ignored completely, brushed off like a mosquito just because you were young, was unbearable. That was why he was here now, in this ancient, dying house. That was why everybody should have been here, every kid who was sick of counting for nothing in this town. It wasn't going to get a skate park built, but at least it would win them some pride. Anyway, spooky, uncomfortable, and boring as this was for Griffin, it had to be better than lying in bed at home, listening to Mom and Dad arguing about money. He regarded Ben's slumbering form with envy. Try as he might, Griffin was too keyed up to fall asleep. At last, he began to wander the empty husk of the Rockford house, his flashlight guiding him down hallways and through rooms. At least the thunder had passed, the storm settling into a steady rain. So much for a dark and stormy night. And then the creature landed in Griffin's hair. Full-on terror rocked him. The flashlight dropped from his hand, and the room was plunged into sudden darkness. 
He slapped desperately at his head as the attacker beat its scalloped wings, burrowing into Griffin's thick curls, squawking and screeching. In his frenzy, Griffin tripped over his own flashlight and went down, wrapping himself in cobwebs as he rolled wildly around on the floor. He touched short fur, rubbery skin, and sharp clinging claws, but his slippery assailant resisted his grasping fingers. It was over as unexpectedly as it had begun. The creature managed to disentangle itself and flew off, leaving Griffin writhing there. He retrieved his light just in time to see a large black bat fluttering up the open stairwell. You're okay, he told himself, heart thumping. Maximum gross, minimum danger, he frowned. There, illuminated in the cone-shaped beam, was a piece of furniture. Most of the house had been emptied prior to demolition day, yet here was some kind of old-fashioned desk. He scrambled to his feet and went over to investigate. It wasn't exactly antiques roadshow quality. It was beaten up and cracked, and the roll top was stuck at an odd angle. By the glow of the flashlight, Griffin played with the many drawers and compartments. There was nothing of interest, just dust and the occasional dead spider. One tiny drawer wouldn't budge. Griffin pulled and the knob came off in his hand. He tried to pry his fingers behind the face of the drawer, but there was zero movement. He perched on the edge of the blotter to catch his breath. The seat of his jeans pressed against a small button. Snap! The locked drawer popped open. A release switch. This must be some kind of hiding place. Eagerly, he shone the light inside the narrow compartment empty. No, wait. At the very back of the drawer, a flash of color caught his eye. He reached in and drew out an old faded card. There was a picture of a loaf of bread in the center, surrounded by the message, Top Dog Bakery Products for the Sandwich of Champions. He turned it over and examined the other side. There was a color drawing of a baseball player shouldering a bat. The image wasn't detailed, but the face seemed familiar. Griffin read the name at the bottom. George Herman Babe Ruth. A baseball card, and it had to be an old one, too, since Babe Ruth had played a very long time ago. Griffin was no expert, but everyone knew that some old baseball cards were worth a lot of money. Money. Just the thought of it brought a dull ache to his stomach. The Bing family was really struggling to make ends meet these days, it had gotten so bad that Mom and Dad were even talking about selling the house and moving to a more affordable neighborhood. No way, Griffin said aloud, teeth clenched. It had taken him 11 years to break in this town and these friends. He wasn't about to give that up without a fight. And if this card turned out to be valuable? Get it out of your head, he admonished himself. What were the odds that someone would leave a priceless collectible to be destroyed inside a condemned building? Still, it was possible. He could hope. He made a face. Griffin was not a hoping kind of guy. His philosophy? If you want something, you make it happen. You don't sit around wishing for it to come true. Yet the tantalizing image would not let go of him. His family's financial problems over. No more dark circles under his parents' eyes from staying up half the night, trying to squeeze money out of a bank account that had none to give. 
Even the man with the plan could be a dreamer when there was so much on the line. Page 17, Chapter 3 The roar of a big motor jolted Ben out of a deep sleep. He sat bolt upright, rubbing eyes that seemed cemented shut. This wasn't his bed. Where was he? The engine noise was so intense that he felt the churning in his stomach. What makes a sound like that? A garbage truck? A semi? Or maybe... He managed to focus enough to take in the sight of the dilapidated parlor around him. A crane carrying a giant wrecking ball. Griffin! A shape stirred inside Griffin's sleeping bag. Ben tore open the zipper to reveal his slumbering friend. Griffin, wake up! What? It's morning. They're tearing down the building. Griffin popped up like a champagne cork. Let's get out of here, he cried. The two scrambled for the window. The entire house was vibrating with the clamorous thrum of the crane. Griffin got there first and stuffed the two sleeping bags and then Ben threw the missing planks. He was halfway out himself, his stomach over the sill, when he realized he couldn't move forward or backward. I'm stuck, he hissed. Ben grabbed him by the wrist and hauled with all his might, but Griffin remained hung up in the opening. A tremendous crash shook the structure and the very earth beneath Ben's feet. The impact pitched Griffin out the window, sending him sprawling on top of Ben. The two scrambled up, dazed. Griffin was white with plaster dust from the waist down. Run, he bellowed. They fled, the sleeping bags trailing behind them. As they rounded the corner, a chilling sight met their eyes. The titanic wrecking ball buried deep in the shattered front of the old Rockford house. If they needed any more reason to get away from there, it came from the horrified job foreman. Hey, you, this is an active demolition zone. Coach Nimitz would have been amazed by the speed and stamina of their escape which were much greater than they ever showed in gym class. The two kept up a lung-searing sprint for several minutes, spurred on by a series of loud booms behind them. They were halfway across town before Griffin pronounced the coast clear enough to slow to a walk. The next time you get a brilliant idea like spending the night in a death trap, Ben panted, pretend my number is unlisted. In the distance, there was a long, low rumble, followed by an earth-shaking thump. That was almost us, you know. My mother didn't raise me to be rubble. No risk, no reward, said Griffin, catching his breath. Some reward. We got revenge on the town for our skate park. Only nobody knows about it but us. Griffin pulled the Babe Ruth card out of his pocket and waved it under his friend's nose. Read it and weep. He gave Ben a quick recap of the discovery in the secret drawer. Babe Ruth, wow, do you think it's real? Griffin shrugged. It makes sense. Old house, old card. The question is, what's it worth? But Griffin, it's not yours, Ben whispered. Griffin indicated the plume of dust that swirled in the air several blocks behind them. When you knock down a house, you're really just throwing it in the garbage. It's not stealing to take something out of the garbage, is it? Besides, he regarded the card ruefully, the sandwich of champions is probably not valuable. I never get that lucky. How can you find out for sure, asked Ben. 
There are experts in this kind of thing. Ben's eyes widen. Palomino's Emporium? Griffin smiled bravely. We'll get an appraisal. Palomino's Emporium of Collectibles and Memorabilia was a fortress unto itself. It was located just past the main strip of town in a low building, surrounded by a high chain-link fence that always made Griffin think of a prisoner of war camp. It had once been a stonecutter's workshop. As young children, he and Ben had always been fascinated by the display of grave markers in the small courtyard. Now the headstones had been replaced by sickly grass and a large dog, who was thankfully asleep. Griffin indicated the front door. Vintage items bought and sold, best prices guaranteed. S. Wendell Palomino, owner and proprietor. Although they live less than a mile away, this was their first time inside the store. Kids almost never came here. It was more like a museum than a comic shop, a museum where you could look but not touch, and everything was under surveillance by grim-faced guards. There were no rows of shelves cluttered with books, toys, knickknacks, cards, and souvenirs. In Palomino's Emporium, everything was frozen into its own glass case with harsh lighting and security wiring. The whole place felt about as welcoming and warm as a bank vault. Ben leaned into one of the displays to see an action figure and gaped at the sticker. 640 bucks? Are they crazy? A tall, cadaverous man with a ring of white hair around a bald crown walked over to him. That's because it's a genuine 1966 Mr. Spock doll from the classic Star Trek TV series, still in its original packaging. Ben frowned. What kid has $600 to spend on a toy? Exactly, the man agreed. This isn't a toy store. Rare collectibles aren't for kids. They're a serious investment. Are you Mr. Palomino? Griffin asked him. I'm Tom Dufferin, the assistant manager. He stretched out a bony arm and indicated another man who was behind a long counter, inserting comic books into precisely sized protective sleeves. That's the big boss over there. S. Wendell Palomino was short, stocky, and surprisingly young. In his mid-thirties, Griffin guessed, not nearly as ancient as Tom Dufferin. His curly hair almost but not quite, fit underneath a New York Rangers cap. Thick glasses made his eyes appear twice their size, like two eggs sunny side up. He turned those eggs on his sixth-grade visitors. What can I do for you, young gentleman? Griffin pulled out his Babe Ruth card. I'm thinking of selling this. I hear you guarantee the best prices. The owner extended a pudgy hand and accepted the last surviving piece of the Rockford estate. His bushy eyebrows shot straight to the ranger's logo on his hat. Griffin was immediately alert. It's valuable, he asked. Palomino laughed shortly. Well, it would be if it was real. You see, a lot of the old card series were re reissued in the 60s and 70s. This one, the Top Dog Bakery line, was knocked off in 1967. I've seen a couple of these before but not in a long time. Excellent quality reproduction. 
He held the card under a large magnifying glass attached to the counter. You see this solid blue border? That was striped in the original. They weren't allowed to make an exact replica because that would have violated counterfeiting laws. That's how we know it's a copy. Ben took in the crestfallen look on Griffin's face. 1967 was a long time ago, he said hopefully. So it's still a little valuable, right? Absolutely, the collectibles dealer confirmed. Why, I saw a whole set of these once go for $1,500. But a single card like this? Well, I'm a sucker for the Bambino. I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. Griffin sighed, his visions of solving the family's money woes popping like soap bubbles. Still, he was a born negotiator. A hundred and fifty, he said instantly. Palomino chuckled. You drive a hard bargain, sonny boy. Tell you what, one twenty. Sold. The dealer counted out six crisp twenty-dollar bills from a thick roll and accepted the card in return. The boys peered over the counter as he stooped to turn the dial of a portable safe on the floor at his feet. He opened the door and locked the new acquisition inside. Griffin frowned. If the card isn't valuable, how come you need to keep it in a safe? This isn't Toys R Us, sonny boy, lectured Palomino, out of breath from the simple act of straightening up. We take security seriously at Palomino's Emporium. A baseball card is the easiest thing in the world to swipe. Stick it in your pocket, and nobody even knows it's there. It stays in the lockbox until it's cataloged and ready for the display cases. Can't somebody just steal the whole safe Ben put in? The dealer snorted. You kids kill me. Steal the safe? That's funny. Griffin spoke up for his friend. He means it's not very big, and there's a handle on top. You could pick it up and walk out the door. Palomino beckoned the two boys behind the counter. All right, you guys, give it a try. Griffin and Ben took firm hold of the handle and pulled. The lockbox didn't budge. Come on, the dealer was grinning at them now. Put some muscle into it. Grunting with effort, they pulled with all their might. Nothing. Palomino burst out laughing in their faces. It's bolted to the floor. Embarrassed, Griffin and Ben slunk out from behind the counter and headed for the door. Tom Dufferin offered a sympathetic smile as they passed by. You're not the first to try it. I doubt you'll be the last. Pleasure doing business with you, young gentlemen, Palomino called after them. Come back any time. As they passed the sleeping dog and stepped outside the fence, both boys relaxed visibly. There was something unnerving about Palomino's emporium almost as if the store had its own energy field. Ben took a breath of fresh air. Sorry, you're not rich. In answer, Griffin took out its money, peeled off three of the twenties, and handed them to Ben. You're cut, he said. I didn't do anything, Ben protested. Sure you did. You stuck with the plan when everybody else bailed. That's how it was with Griffin. Always the plan, even when the plan had nearly gotten them buried under a building. Page 29, Chapter 4. The light was on in the garage. This was no big surprise. The light was always on in the garage. It was Mr. Bing's workshop. As long as Griffin could remember, his father had been tinkering with some invention in there. But never before had Dad become so obsessed with one of his creations 
that he'd quit his engineering job so he could develop it full-time. The smart pick fruit picker of the future. When Griffin retreated to the garage later that afternoon to escape his parents' argument, the prototype lay on the workbench. Griffin pressed a button, and the telescoping aluminum shaft whirred outward. He worked the control in the opposite direction, and the pole receded into itself. There was nothing on the market like it. The fruit-safe picking mechanism used padded pinchers and a twisting motion rather than a cutting blade for a 0% chance of damaged produce. It was a revolution in agriculture. Only, who needs a smart pick when there are perfectly good human beings with real hands? Griffin felt guilty for his disloyal thought yet the common sense of it would not leave him alone. The Bings had bet their entire future on this so-called revolution. Otherwise, Dad would have kept his job, and nobody would be thinking about moving. It was thanks to the smart pick that his parents were in the kitchen right now, tearing their hair over some bill that they didn't have enough money to pay. The raised voices carried all through the house. Bickering, agonizing, sell A to pay for B, Cut corners, spend less, economize, economize, economize. And the worst part was that there was absolutely nothing Griffin could do about it. Here he was, the man with the plan, and he might as well have been a blob of Play-Doh for all he could help his family. He was too young to get a part-time job. He couldn't even hand over the 60 bucks from the Babe Ruth card without confessing the whole Rockford House escapade. As he set down the smart pick, the pole brushed against the antenna of his father's old black-and-white TV. For an instant, the 10-inch screen resolved itself into a very familiar face before returning to snow and interference. Huh? Griffin fiddled with the aerial until the picture returned. No, he wasn't seeing things. Grinning out at him were the unmistakable features of Babe Ruth. It was the baseball card from the old Rockford house, he turned up the sound. When I bought the collection, I had no idea. But the instant I laid eyes on it, I mean, wow! Griffin recognized the breathlessness of the voice, like the speaker had just run a marathon. The sunny side-up eyes of S. Wendell Palomino appeared on the small screen. What's a guy who sells overpriced Star Trek dolls doing on TV, Griffin wondered. The dealer stood in the courtyard of Palomino's Emporium, holding up the Babe Ruth card for a group of reporters and cameramen. There are a lot of similar cards out there, one woman was saying. What makes this one so special? It was printed in 1920, Palomino explained, Ruth's first season at a Yankee. But look at the picture. A cameraman zoomed in. That's a Red Sox uniform, he observed. Palomino nodded enthusiastically. Right. The top dog bakery people wanted to compete with the cigarette and chewing gum companies that dominated the baseball card market. The presses were already rolling before the trade went through. They were able to call back most of the run, but 200 copies were released into circulation. Only a handful are known today. That's what makes this card especially valuable. Griffin felt his blood boil. That liar, that cheat. He said it was a fake, a knockoff from the 60s. 
he invented a whole story about a solid border instead of a striped one. How much is it worth, Wendell? Another reporter piped up. What are you selling it for? Gentlemen, gentlemen, the dealer chuckled, obviously loving every minute. This isn't the kind of item you slap a price tag on and stick in the window. This card will be sold to the highest bidder at Worthington's annual sports memorabilia auction on October 17th. The opening bid will be, he paused dramatically, $200,000. Griffin nearly choked. The reporters were astonished. You think you can get that much, asked a woman? I think I can get more, Palomino replied smugly. Specimens from the famous T-206 set frequently sell for six-figure amounts. The legendary 1909 Honus Wagner card recently went for over $2 million. This misprint showing the Bambino in a Red Sox uniform is just as rare. The people at Worthington's think it could be the second card in history to break the million-dollar barrier. A million dollars! Griffin couldn't believe it. It was right in the palm of his hands, enough to solve our money problems for life. I'm going over to Ben's, Griffin hollered in the direction of the kitchen. He didn't wait for an answer from his parents, who was still wrangling over the checkbook. An argument that wouldn't be happening if not for S. Wendell Palomino. He jumped on his bike and pedaled down the driveway. He hoped Mom and Dad were too preoccupied to look at the window and notice that he was turning left, away from the Slovak house. He had another destination in mind. He arrived at Palomino's Emporium, just as the press conference was breaking up. The reporters and crew were filing out the opening in the fence under the watchful eye of a Doberman pincher. Excuse me, kid. A sound man brushed past Griffin, bumping him with a microphone boom. Suddenly, Griffin realized he had no idea what he should do next. He may have been the man with the plan, but he had thought no further than getting himself to the store. What could he say? That's not his card. It's mine. Technically, that wasn't true. Griffin had sold it and had been paid in full. Yes, Palomino had tricked him by implying that the card wasn't real. It was shady, underhanded, unethical, and even sleazy. But sleaze, by itself, wasn't against the law. Besides, what if nobody believed him? He had no proof that he'd been the one to find the card, except for Ben say so. Adults didn't listen to 11-year-olds. At the town meeting, they had refused to sit through a three-minute presentation about a skate park. Why would they accept the word of two kids when a million bucks hung in the balance? When the media people had gone, Griffin ventured up to the store. The Doberman blocked the front door, its teeth barred. On top of everything else, that was intimidating about this place. Add one attack dog. That's okay, Luther, came a voice from inside. Reluctantly, the Doberman backed away and Griffin entered. Palomino was in his usual spot behind the counter. With effort, he tore his attention from the baseball card in his hand. What can I do for you, sonny boy? You knew, Griffin accused him. The minute I brought you that thing, you could tell it was no fake. Wait, the dealer said. You're not saying that this piece of junk you sold me was this card? I found this in a collection I bought in an estate sale on the West Coast. 
Good luck, it happens. Somebody up there likes me. So where's my card, Griffin demanded. Show me my worthless piece of junk next to your Babe Ruth masterpiece. I already sold it. Took a bath on it, too. You were lucky I gave you as much as I did. Griffin stared at him, blown away by the sheer dishonesty of the man. This wasn't some kid. It was an adult, the owner of a business. How could he act this way? Palomino spoke once more. A word to the wise. The world is a big, fat, scary place filled with people who will chew you up and spit you out if you give them half a chance. Consider this your first life lesson. I came to you for a fair deal, Griffin sputtered. Oh, come down off your high horse, the dealer sneered. You were after money, just like I was after money. Everybody's after money. Some of us are just a little better at it, that's all. Griffin's eyes narrowed. You won't get away with this, Palomino laughed. That's where you're wrong, sonny boy. You've heard that possession is nine-tenths of the law? In the collectibles game, it's ten-tenths of the law. If it isn't in your hand, you don't own it. Now get out of my store. He stuck a fat finger in his mouth and let out a sharp whistle. With a growl that was more of a roar, Luther burst into the shop. The Doberman sprang at Griffin, who backed away, colliding painfully with the display case of Yoda action figures. The big dog's snapping jaws were just inches from his trembling chin. Easy, Luther, Palomino commanded with a chuckle. Our friend was just leaving. The dog withdrew a half step, but no more. Terrified, Griffin managed to sidestep the Yodas and retreat in the direction of the exit. We appreciate your business. Please do not come again, the dealer heckled gleefully as Griffin turned and ran out the door. Back on his bike, Griffin struggled to wrestle his spinning thoughts into some kind of order. One, I've been cheated. Picturing the sentence as it might have appeared in one of his famous plans made him feel a little more in control. Cheated, that was exactly what had happened to him and out of a lot more than a baseball card, a million dollars to develop the smart pick. Even if the invention turned out to be a bust, that money would allow Dad to find a new job and start over. This was about the entire future of the Bing family. It was time for the man with the plan to embark on the most important plan of his life. But what could that possibly be? A lawsuit? The Bings could barely pay their mortgage. Where were they going to get money for lawyers? No, there was only one way to get the card back. Palomino had stolen it from him. Griffin had to fight fire with fire. Page 41, Chapter 5 Ben's eyes were nearly popped out of their sockets. You want to pull a what? Shh, whispered Griffin. It was lunch recess and the playground was crowded. A heist. Like in the movies, a robbery? That's stealing. Not stealing, Griffin amended, stealing back. There's a big difference. Are the police going to think so? What would the police think about a store owner who rips kids off, Griffin challenged. S. Wendell, Ben said with a sigh. Never trust anybody whose name sounds like Swindle. He's the ultimate Swindle, Griffin agreed. He sure swindled me. And the only way to get that card back is to take it. What do you say? 
A hand came down on Ben's shoulder. I say it's time for Mrs. Slovak's allergy medication, announced Nurse Savage. Oh, right, Ben exclaimed, startled. The last thing he wanted was for this robbery talk to be overheard by the school nurse. He began to follow her through a maze of whirling jump ropes. Griffin grabbed his friend's wrist. Hey, if your allergies are so bad, he asked in a low voice, why aren't you sneezing from all the mold and dust in the old Rockford house? Ben shrugged. Maybe the medicine really works. Nurse Savage held open the door and Ben disappeared inside the building. What the? Something jagged scratched Griffin in the back of his neck. He wheeled around to find a sixth grader the size of an NFL linebacker stabbing at him with a long branch. Darren, what are you doing? Griffin shouted. Can't you tell? Darren Vader jeered, poking the stick at the bridge of Griffin's nose. I'm field testing my new invention, the dumb pick. Sorry, I thought your head was a coconut. Angrily, Griffin slapped the branch away. It's a smart pick, you idiot, and it's a miracle of technology. He would never have admitted his own doubts about his father's brainchild to Darren. You wouldn't even know about it if you weren't such a snoop. I wasn't snooping, Darren defended himself. My mom had the papers spread out on the kitchen table. Mrs. Vader was the lawyer who filed the smart pick patent. Yeah, and way to blab it all over the school, Griffin accused. Excuse me for making sure a brilliant inventor gets some credit. You guys will be rich someday, you know, when millions of people decide to quit their jobs and start picking fruit. Shut up, Griffin thundered. You've always got so much to say, but when it comes to action, you're nothing. What about the old Rockford house, huh? Where were you on Friday night? I had the flu, Darren mumbled. You don't look like you're at death's door. It was a 24-hour bug, Darren exclaimed. There was a lot of that going around, Griffin clucked disapprovingly, raising his voice to reach some of the other sixth graders nearby. Nice show of solidarity, you guys leaving Ben and me to stand up for the kids in this town. Sorry, Griffin, said Antonia Benson, who went by her climbing nickname, Pitch. My family was at the indoor rock wall. I completely spaced. Me too, admitted Marcus Oliver, totally blanked. Griffin was unconvinced. You guys didn't blank when it came to filling Ben full of stories about railway spikes and possessed pecs. There's no such thing as a possessed pet, lectured Savannah Drysdale. Animals are all innocent inside. And speaking of animals, that's why I couldn't be there on Friday. Madame Curie was about to litter. My hamster. And, Pitch prompted, it was a boy, Savannah reported happily, and another boy, and three girls. Well, I didn't miss it for any dumb reason like that, said Logan Kellerman haughtily. I have an audition for an acne cream commercial. I had to stay home and rehearse. Rehearse what? Darren laughed, squeezing zits. That shows what you know about acting. It's all emotion. The audience has to really believe my heartbreak over having a pimple. You are a pimple, Darren grunted. Whatever the reason, we're all sorry, Griffin, Pitch put in. We shouldn't have flaked out on you that way. Maybe some of us were a little scared. Maybe we just didn't think it was worth it. Walking past the big pile of rubble this morning, I wished I had been there. 
our loss. You bet it's your loss, Griffin said resentfully. But with the fruits of that adventure, the Babe Ruth card in S. Wendell Palomino's chubby hands, he was in no mood to tell them why. Mr. Martinez's students were working on the creative writing assignment when Ben got back to class. He deliberately avoided Griffin's searching eyes as he took the seat next to his friend. Let's get together after school to start work on the plan, Griffin whispered eagerly. Every second he spent with the nurse, Griffin had been dreading this conversation. Since the days when Griffin's plans had involved bicycles with training wheels, Ben had always been in. It had become as constant as the sunrise. That was what made this so difficult. Griffin, I can't. Obviously, we'll have to do some surveillance on the store, Griffin went on. You know, pinpoint the weak spots. Ben wasn't even surprised that Griffin had missed his refusal. Once his friend was on a mission, nothing short of an earthquake could get his attention. You're not listening, man. I can't do it. The answer is no. That was earthquake enough. What are you talking about? Griffin asked. Why not? Ben looked at him helplessly. Where do I start? It's against the law. We'll never get away with it, and it's just plain wrong. It isn't wrong, Griffin said stoutly. What Swindle did, that's wrong. We're just setting it right again. Okay, so it's not wrong, but it's wrong for us. We're not burglars. I know we talk about how kids can do anything adults can, but not this. Griffin's voice rose in tone and volume. Then Swindle wins. Shh, hissed Mr. Martinez from behind his desk. How can you let that jerk get away with taking advantage of us? Griffin continued in a slightly lower voice. How can you let him get rich doing it? That's my card, my money, our money, because I was going to give you half. I don't want to be rich, Ben shot back. Okay, maybe I do, but not this way. Boys, quiet, the teacher said warningly. I have to do this, Griffin pleaded. I can't explain, but there's a good reason. Of all my plans, this one is the most important. You always say that. Every plan is the most important till the next one comes along. This time it's true, Griffin exclaimed. The money... Griffin and Ben, Mr. Martinez interrupted angrily. Since you can't work quietly as neighbors, you're going to have to move. Ben, you go over and sit with Logan. Griffin, take the empty desk behind Melissa. But, Mr. Martinez, Griffin began, now. As he gathered up his papers, Griffin looked beseechingly at his best friend. He mouthed the word, please. Ben could barely muster the strength of will to shake his head no. Griffin's despair was total. Year in and year out, there had always been one constant, one thing that could be relied on through floods and asteroid strikes, the unchanging fact that Ben was willing to follow him anywhere. Yet today, with so much at stake, his loyal friend had let him down. He had never felt so helpless. Page 51, Chapter 6 Logan Kellerman was an idiot. That was the conclusion Ben had reached after three days of sitting next to the boy. The audition for the acne cream commercial had not gone well, and Logan could think of nothing else. He slumped at his desk, his already long face drawn out to banana-like proportions, blaming his failure on everybody except himself, the casting director, 
his parents, and Sanjay Jawani. Who's Sanjay Jawani? asked Ben without interest. Only the greatest acting coach ever to come out of India, Logan told him. He's giving private lessons in the city. Guess whose parents are too cheap to pay for it? Ben cast a longing gaze across the classroom where Griffin sat behind Melissa Dukakis. That was what really bothered Ben. Why he had so little patience for Logan's nonsense. The punishment was over. Mr. Martinez said the two boys were free to return to their old seats. But Griffin was so upset over Ben's refusing to take part in the baseball card robbery that he wouldn't move. I don't sit with traitors, had been Griffin's declaration when Ben had made an attempt to come back. Those were the only words Ben had heard from his best friend in the past three days. The icy silence between them had become so obvious that the other kids were starting to mention it. Pitch kept asking what was wrong, and even Darren commented, Who broke up the doofus patrol? How could Ben ever explain it? The same dogged go-getter qualities that forged the man with the plan made Griffin as stubborn as a mule when he was angry about something. Kate Mulholland had been working with Sanjay Jatwani for less than two months, and already she's landed a part in a heartburn commercial, Logan was lamenting. I'm better than Kate Mulholland. I can do heartburn. I can do gastric distress. I can do constipation like nobody's business. At least Griffin wasn't exactly having a picnic on the other side of the room with Melissa. She had a reputation as a computer genius, but it was impossible to be sure about that. She was the shyest kid in town and spent most of her time hiding behind long stringy hair that completely covered her face. As Ben watched, Melissa agitated her head until the curtain thinned to reveal pale skin and wide eyes. She mumbled a one-word answer to Griffin's question. With a loud sigh, Logan put his books away and laid his head down on his desk. What's the use? Who can think when my entire career is falling apart? My parents are way too East Coast to understand what it takes to make it in Hollywood. Ben closed his eyes and pictured himself in a faraway place where there was no such thing as a million-dollar baseball card and heists only happened in action movies. Though this was what ex-friendship was like. Griffin was stuck with a kid who barely opened her mouth, and Ben was stuck with one who never shut up. As miserable as sixth grade had become, the after-school hours were even worse. Ben was used to spending all his spare time with Griffin, so he wasn't just depressed. He was bored, a toxic combination. He had been biking a lot, almost as if he believed he could outrun his loneliness if he pedaled hard enough. He must have passed the site of the former Rockford house a dozen times. The debris had been cleared away. All that remained was the stone foundation and the old-fashioned mailbox out front, a grave marker for the ghosts and murderers that had probably never lived there. The place made him think of Griffin, just like Every place made him think of Griffin. For Ben, very few landmarks in town didn't hold some special Griffin connection. The school, the town hall, Palomino's Emporium. 
It wasn't very long before he found himself on Griffin Street, almost as if his bike knew the way and had ridden there on its own. How often in the past has he wheeled up this block, turning onto the familiar driveway? A woman he didn't recognize was on the front lawn, hammering in the stake of a cardboard sign. Ben squinted to read it. For sale. He was never sure exactly how he and the bike separated. The next thing he knew, he was flying through the air. He landed hard on the road, leaving much of the skin of his left elbow on the concrete curb. The lady rushed over and helped him up. Are you all right? Ben hardly noticed the pain or his bleeding arm. This house isn't for sale. It just listed this morning, she told him. Do you need me to drive you somewhere? Is your mother home? Ben yanked himself away. People live here. The door opened and Griffin peered outside. Ben? Ben pointed to the woman. She's trying to sell your house out from under you. It's okay, Mrs. Brompton, Griffin told her. He's my friend. He hustled Ben inside to the bathroom and held his injured arm under running water. Calm down, man. She's our real estate agent. Real estate agent? Ben pulled back from the sink, splattering the floor with pink-tinged water. You mean your house really is for sale? You're moving? Griffin nodded. All because I wouldn't do the heist? Of course not. Listen, Griffin hadn't told a soul about the Bing family's financial problems. Now Ben listened with rapt attention. That's why I got so freaked out about the Babe Ruth card, Griffin concluded the whole sad story. That money would save our house. It would let my dad develop his dream. It would change everything for my family. How can I let a sleazy two-bit con man take all that away? I, I don't know what to say, Ben managed. As awful as these past few days had been, it was nothing compared to what Griffin must have been going through. No wonder he was so obsessed with the heist. He was fighting for his home and family. Despite his horror at the thought of Griffin moving away, Ben was aware of an even stronger emotion. He'd always wondered what it would be like to be Griffin, to experience the pure, clear sense of purpose that was at the core of his friend's character. In that instant, all his doubts and misgivings about the robbery burned away. What was left was the searing uncertainty that this was just not the right course of action but the only course of action. You really think we can pull off a heist, Ben asked? The man with the plan grinned. The Great Baseball Card Heist Plan of Attack 1. Gain access to Swindle's store. 2. Locate safe behind sales counter. 3. Burn hole inside of safe using Dad's blowtorch. Four, return home rich. Major obstacles. One, padlocked gate. Two, seven-foot-high fence. Three, security glass on front door. Four, three deadbolts. Five, burglar alarm. How can we learn keypad code? Six, the X-Factor. Anybody who wires display cases and bolts a safe to the floor must have a few surprises up his sleeve. Surveillance report. 
1. Store hours, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. 2. Swindle leaves 5.30 in black Honda Element. 3. Assistant manager Tom Dufferin closes shop at... Page 60, Chapter 7. Six o'clock on the nose, Griffin hissed excitedly, making a note on his pad. The two boys were hidden inside a large globe cedar directly across 9th Street from Palomino's Emporium. Come on, Griffin. How about a little wiggle room, Ben complained. I've got a prickly branch up my armpit. They watched as Dufferin got into a car parked at the curb. Griffin wrote down the make and model as the assistant manager drove away. The two boys emerged from the bush, shaking and stretching cramped limbs. What do you think about the fence, Griffin mused. I think it's a fence around a locked store with a burglar alarm, Ben confirmed. Piece of cake, if you've made of ectoplasm and can walk through walls. Just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean it can't be done, Griffin replied. If you want it bad enough, it'll come to you. They crossed the street and stood before the heavy chain that held the gate shut. Can we climb it? Experimentally, Griffin jammed a toe in the mesh and hoisted himself up. Luther came out of nowhere. The big Doberman launched itself through the air and slammed into the fence opposite Griffin. The shocked boy lost his grip and tumbled into the arms of a terrified Ben. The two of them landed flat on their backs on the sidewalk. The monster clung to the mesh by its powerful teeth, snarling and growling. Griffin hauled Ben upright, and they scrambled back across Ninth Street to the cover of their bush. Griffin pulled out his notebook and wrote, Animal Control, in large letters across the page. Control that guy? Ben squeaked. I'd settle for not being his lunch. Griffin looked thoughtful. Who knows more about animals than anybody else in town?